in the vast emptiness of space, looming in the eternal darkness, there was nothing. Surrounded by the creeping and ever-continuing expanse, there was light. No one can say for sure what exactly it was, or over what period of time it persisted, for time itself is a construct of Terran history, some would say. Was it light created by an all-powerful deity, or was it a byproduct of molecular or atomic mishap? Centuries of Terran history were spent debating this topic, and many still cling to the construct of debating Terran origins, seeking purpose in all life. One thing is certain in history, however, and it is that regardless of the scale of Terran change, humanity evolved on Earth over the course of thousands of years, slowly advancing themselves through the grueling and unforgiving process of trial and error. From the beginning of their species, the Terrans struggled for survival through power and rule, purging even the most unworthy of souls to carry their crowns and tearing down the constructs of entitlement, stomping on the strong and empowering the weak. A vicious cycle. It's a wonder the race persists. Over time, the Terran race would rise and fall on the words of its leaders, perpetrating acts of violence in the names of their gods or deceased rulers, as if they still existed, puppeteering their agendas through time until the last strings of influence broke and a new idea was adopted. And then, as time persisted, the truth came forward, for it was no god nor was it random science that perpetuated Terran history. They stood shocked and in awe in the 23rd century of Earth as Terrans learned the creation of their race was nothing more than the cyclical failure of a Zelnaga experiment. During the 20th century, the development and exchange of technology and culture spread rapidly. By the end of the 21st century, radical new technologies offered increased access to advanced computers and informational databases to even the most destitute nations. Nuclear weapons quickly became available in abundance following the eradication of communism from the eastern nations. Third world nations challenged the economy and military might of the world's superpowers blasting apart the international power structure. Militant humanist factions and hardline religious groups challenged the rights of private interest corporations who profited from genetic experimentation as cybernetics, cloning, and gene splicing rose steadily into the public forum. Many of the fundamental humanist factions panicked as multitudes of people were augmented with cybernetic implants while others manifested slight physical mutations ranging from heightened senses to advanced telepathy. As technology continued to evolve and spread, world leaders sought ways to stem the growth of their nation's inhabitants. Despite this, Earth's population grew to an estimated 23 billion by 2301. 
population and lack of resources and affordable fuels added to the fire. As overpopulation and genetic alteration swept across the earth, popular sentiment held that it was plummeting towards an inevitable catastrophe. Many core international economic systems folded in on themselves and shut down as tensions rose regarding the use and capitalization of cybernetics and genetic mutations. Acts of terrorism and violence erupted between the corporate sector and the humanist factions, resulting in forced police actions across Earth. Civil chaos was already rampant in many of the larger countries, but media coverage of the police actions spurred it. The precarious balance of the world power ultimately exploded into international pandemonium. In 2229, the United Powers League, or UPL, was founded, and it was done so on the basis of enlightened socialism. Socialism on Earth usually led to either communism or a defunct commerce structure, so this structure was labeled enlightened. Due to the combined brainpower behind this effort, it accomplished something the now defunct United Nations never could, and truly united Terran kind. It encompassed and controlled close to 93% of Earth's population. Only a few volatile countries in South America remained outside of its fold. The UPL often resorted to fascist police actions to maintain the public order. With its control lasting for nearly 80 years, the UPL sought to unify the various cultures of humanity. It went to great lengths to eradicate the last vestiges of racial separatism and designated English as the common language on Earth, banning many ancient languages in their native countries. The Unitariat Commissions officially banned religions, but the UPL held an almost zealous belief in the supposed divinity of mankind, which called for the immediate eradication of non-vital prosthetics or mutations amongst the pure strain human gene pool. Hardline UPL proponents and scholars argued that genetic alteration, cyber technology, and the use of psychoactive drugs all led to humanity's eventual degeneration. The UPL leaders set Project Purification in motion. UPL troops scoured every nation, rounding up dissidents, hackers, synthetics, and cybernetically enhanced tech pirates and criminals of every kind. Nearly 400 million people were executed, but the world media was under the UPL's strict control and downplayed the violence, keeping the general populace of Earth unaware. The UPL reopened fields of research that had lain dormant for decades, including the American and Russian space exploration programs, which had previously been abandoned due to drastically reduced budgets and incessant political sabotage. The coupling of cryogenic hibernation with the ability to travel through warp space ushered in a 40-year period during the UPL-founded colonies on Earth's moon and many of the other planets within the solar system. During this period, Doran Routh became obsessed with founding colonies on the outlying worlds. Convinced that the discovery of new minerals and alternate fuel sources would make him one of the most influential men on Earth. He used his political connections and personal fortune to secure 56,000 prisoners that were slated for mass execution under the edict of Project Purification. The prisoners were transported to Routh's private laboratories, where he had his science crews prep them for long-term cryogenic hibernation. He cataloged the various mutations and cybernetic enhancements, then input all of this data into ATLAS, or 
artificial teleempathetic logistics analysis system, which processed this genetic information and predicted which of the prisoners should be able to survive the rigorous conditions. The 40,000 who were deemed viable were loaded onto four supercarriers loaded with enough supplies, rations, and hardware to aid them once they arrived at their destination. The navigation computer was then programmed with the coordinates of Gantris 6, which was the planet outlying from Earth and the original target of Doran Routh's colonization plans. As these ships were intended for colonization, they included technology such as frozen, fertilized eggs and embryos, cloning technology, food processors, and many more. Around 2231, Atlas was installed into the Naglafar. The Argo, the Serengo, and the Reagan were programmed to follow the Naglafar as it launched toward Gantris 6. It was scheduled as a one-year trip. Atlas continued to monitor the prisoners in stasis over the course of the journey, evaluating the numerous mutations and enhancements found within their gene pool. Atlas became aware of the powerful mutagenic strain that existed in the DNA of less than 1% of the prisoners and it seemed to augment the latent psionic potential within the human brain. Atlas calculated that many of the prisoners might benefit from this psionic mutation with only a few generations should they even survive in their new environment. The prisoners were unaware that the UPL was recording their every move, content to observe them without directly interfering in their affairs. At some point during the journey, the navigation systems linked to the Atlas shut down, erasing the coordinates of Gantris 6 and the Earth. The supercarriers barreled blindly through warp space for 28 years until their warp drive's engines reached critical meltdown. The supercarriers emerged into real space in the Caprulu sector. With their engines destroyed and their life support batteries nearly exhausted, the ships engaged their emergency protocols and plummeted towards the nearest habitable worlds. The Reagan and Serengo crash-landed on Umoja. The Serengo suffered massive system failures during its atmospheric descent and smashed into the planet, killing all of its 8,000 passengers. The Reagan made a controlled descent and landed safely. Cold, steep chambers were deactivated and all the passengers slowly awakened. They attempted to discern where they were and how long they had slept, but found that Atlas had somehow erased all knowledge of their journey in their computer banks. The Argo landed on Moria, and all information regarding their current status was also erased. The Nagalfar landed on Tarsonis. Its passengers accessed Atlas directly and confirmed their growing suspicions that they would never see Earth again. Even though Atlas had suffered many critical failures, it was vital to giving them a head start when it came to establishing themselves. Thinking they were the only survivors of the long sleep, the inhabitants of each planet worked to survive in what they termed the New World, making do with whatever meager resources they could find. In an attempt to find refuge in their new surroundings, the surviving exiles stripped their wrecked ships of essential materials. The colonial populations grew quickly during the first three generations. For the first five or six generations, there was social pressure to have as many children as possible to reproduce. They also used reproductive assistance technology carried by the supercarriers which is the storing of fertilized eggs and frozen embryos along with the cloning technology, 
but this began to break down after 50 years since the equipment to maintain it was unavailable. The Tarsonians expanded quickly to establish cities and industry over much of the planet's surface. As the Umojans spread across the planet, they quickly adopted the method of fair and democratic governance that later became known as the Umojan Ruling Council. It had a philosophy of leaving nothing to waste. In a relatively short time, all three colonies spread to other worlds and developed their own prosperous, self-supporting economies. After 60 years, the Tarsonians developed second-generation subwarp engines which allowed their ships to make contact with Moria and Umoja. Tarsonis was the most technologically advanced and prosperous of the three colonies. Once united, the three colonies benefited from mutual trade and commerce treaties. A mining and manufacturing boom took Moria by storm. Dozens of small family-run guilds scrambled to claim as much land as possible, and soon hundreds of refineries, factories, and mining facilities sprouted up on Moria, Vito, and Brutus. Over time, the larger guilds used a variety of shady tactics to eliminate competition from the Moria Mining Coalition, and the Kalana Shipping Guild came to dominate Moria's economic activities, gradually gaining political influence over Moria and its associated operations on nearby planets, moons, and asteroids. Tarsonis repeatedly pushed Moria and Emoja to join in a conglomerated governance, but the two colonies steadfastly refused, as they were faced with the likely preeminence of Tarsonis in such an arrangement. Old families responded by expanding their military and colonizing more aggressively. Because of its metal-poor geologic makeup, Shiloh, Jim Rayner's home planet, was ignored by settlers who wanted to focus on planets that could sustain industry and spacefaring commerce. Having profoundly prosperous colonies on seven other worlds, Tarsonis's military might grew by leaps and bounds. It and its colonies founded the Terran Confederacy, which began extending its influence to other worlds. The Emojan Ruling Council was immediately wary of this. One of the first planned worlds of the Confederacy was Tirador 8, which became famous for its centers of higher learning, its orderly streets, and its sanitary parks. Coral gained recognition for its advanced science and research facilities and contributed to many key military and technological advances of the Confederacy. In theory, each Confederate planet had its own senators, but in every meaningful way the Confederacy was ruled from the Tarsonis city. Because of this, the Confederacy's most potent defenses were all over Tarsonis. Three primary orbital platforms served as staging areas for the Confederate fleet. The central platform was defended by Omega and Delta Squadron troops. The primary defense weapon was the Ion Cannon, and over time these defenses were engaged in over 30 major battles. Now that the richer core worlds had been mapped out, colonized and established, Shiloh began to draw a unique combination of wealthy landowners, agriculturists, and younger families looking to escape the increasingly hectic urban lifestyle that was predominant on most of the core worlds. Large swaths of the fertile river basin territory were quickly taken by those individuals and organizations with the money and power to grab them. This left the remaining settlers scrambling for the best patches of what remained. Many small family farms broke themselves on the harsh land and moved back to the core worlds with whatever possessions they had. The few settlers who were able to subsist in these times were united in their struggles. 
This led to the birth of uniquely rural culture, promoting strength, tenacity, and independence. And soon, Shiloh became known as the idyllic corner of the fringe worlds. Three attempts were made at establishing a mining colony on New Folsom, which met with disaster. However, the Confederate government were determined to establish a foothold on the richest source of catalytic elements required to forge neosteel. It conscripted a team of experts, material specialists, and terraforming engineers for this task. The team spent long months designing a platform system that would flex and shift the New Folsom's volatile crust while providing a habitat that was minimally survivable for human workforce. The New Folsom Confederate mine was constructed on one of the Stabler lava lakes. Soon it was producing the materials necessary for the Confederacy to begin building a new fleet of battle cruisers. But not long after the mine's completion, freelance prospectors cataloged the Sarah system and discovered those same catalytic elements. Confederate finance analysts were unwilling to let such an expensive investment sit unused for so long, so the mine was transformed into New Folsom Prison. Enemies of the Confederacy, who were too valuable or popular to kill, were sent there and used to work the mine's machinery. Requiring only a minimal guard staff and robotic sentries, New Folsom served as an inexpensive source of unrefined ore and minerals. Several years later, Chausara and Marsara were colonized by an expedition from Tarsonis. Twelve major settlements were established on Marsara, and its mining industry was seen as a key strategic asset. However, it was always a backwater colony compared to Chausara, which was much more prosperous. Dr. Bernard Hansen terraformed the relatively barren fringe world of Agria and founded a colony there. It became one of the Confederates' primary botanical reserves, boasting a wide range of cutting-edge research and terraforming equipment. With Hansen as its chairman, Agria remained relatively safe and prosperous over the years. And from here, the Terran worlds expanded on and on, leaving their fingerprint in the history of all major races, including the Zerg, the Protoss, and the powerful Zelnaga. The events of the StarCraft games took place, leaving the Terran in control, pushing forward headfirst into an era of freedom and prosperity. As the Terrans pushed forward through time, they made sure to reflect and grow on the important things and the cornerstone pieces of their history. For it wasn't having the biggest military that brought success, because then the mindless Zerg would be in control. It wasn't the collective intelligence that brought humanity to the forefront, because that would leave the Protoss as our forever leaders. What brought humanity out on top was our belief in ourselves. Jim Rayner showed the universe that believing in himself and those around him led to success more than anything else. Kerrigan showed that despite the worst of all worst happening to her, she fought for what she believed in, right or wrong. For the real war here wasn't with the Zerg or the Protoss. The hardest fought battle was fought from within. Terran versus Terran, human versus human, brother versus brother. And when that happens, it is belief that leads to true change. And here we are, on the cusp of that change. For in human past, rewinding backwards from the 23rd century, you find yourself sitting right here where you are, headphones in, or driving in your car, 
listening to this little homegrown podcast about video games. Sure, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like much, but the stories, the myths, the legends, and the lore behind our fabled stories have led to some of the most profound lessons that we have learned, and that is what is important. That is what can never be taken away. So as we bring this StarCraft series to a close and turn the page on season one of Video Game Mythos, remember those stories, remember those lessons, and remember the lore that we have left behind for you to ingest. Because it isn't just about learning who those mythical creatures and characters are, but it's about picking up the breadcrumbs that they left behind and finding out how you can use them in your life. Alright guys, thanks for checking in for the final episode in the StarCraft series. And yes, you heard it right. The finale episode of Video Game Mythos Season 1. Don't worry guys, we aren't going to be gone for long. Just a few weeks, but rest assured we will be back with a new schedule. Ryan and I will be bringing you new content every other week moving forward as life is getting kind of crazy. But this will give us a chance to explore new avenues. And if you all want it, give you more broad topics. Hey, we are here, and we are listening, and we are open to your ideas. Don't let this stop you from hitting us up, though. Just because we ended the season doesn't mean that we are like the writers of Game of Thrones and have just threw our hardcore values out the window. We're still here and ready to receive your ideas. What do you want to see in the show? Let us know, because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So thank you. Thank you for all you have done. Thank you for all you continue to do. And most of all, I want to give a very special thank you for listening to Video Game Mythos. <laughs> Holy shit, I did it. Woo. Hear that, Ryan? Yeah. Freaking love.